All right, so I want to preach my message today, and it's a short one, but it's two key things you just have to remember. Okay, the message is called How to Steward Financial Prosperity. Now, in the church, the church has taken a very, have, they've landed at a very unbalanced view toward financial prosperity. And it is a view and a conclusion that is driven by fear rather than the, by the Word of God. Now, let's make it clear. There are warnings in Scripture about the love of money being the root of all kinds of evil. There are warnings in Scripture about how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. There are warnings about parables where the rich man stores up all of this wealth for himself. But God comes and says, this night your life will be taken from you. Who's going to enjoy all of your wealth? So there are these warnings, especially in the New Testament, about financial wealth, financial prosperity. But what the church has done is, and what's really interesting is, a lot of our current modern evangelical views on financial prosperity and finances and wealth, it's really rooted a lot more on Greco-Roman culture than it is upon Bible The Jewish mindset, if you didn't notice, even today, the Jewish mindset about wealth is radically different than the Greco-Roman one, than the Greek Hellenistic one. You're driven by Aristotle, the philosophers, who taught very specific things about what is virtue and what is vice. But we cannot define virtue and vice based on what philosophers have said. We've got to define it. The parameters need to come from the Word of God. And so our doctrine on financial prosperity oftentimes is based on fear, based on these warnings of, oh no, I don't want to ever fall into the traps of wealth, the traps of money, so let me just deny it altogether. And they arrive at these, what they think are very virtuous, modest, good views of wealth. But they are actually just a poor excuse and cover-up for a lack of faith. So, I want to say, first of all, if you listen to my message, you have an obligation to prosper. There's an obligation that you have to prosper. You understand that prosperity is not an option. For God's people, prosperity is an obligation. If you look at the parables, God gives money. Well, not God, but the parable story master, right? The master gives talents, minus. These are portions of money, large portions of money to his three servants. And to the two servants in both parables, they take what they got from their master and they produce more. They prosper. And they return with more and they say, look, master, look what, what you've given me. I produce this much more. But the third servant in both parables says, well, I know you're a hard man, reaping where you have not sown. And so I was afraid of you. I was afraid I was going to lose this portion of money you entrusted to me. So I buried it. Here it is, master. Aren't you proud of me that I didn't lose it? And in both parables... The master says, you wicked and lazy. Now, we think the, ma- the, the servant's just lazy, right? But the master says, you wicked and lazy servant. 
I'm telling you right now. If you want to influence your culture, your city, your nation for the kingdom of God, it's going to require wealth. It's going to require finances. The apostle Paul understood this. All of the early church understood this. Why do you think that Ananias and Sapphira, they were supposedly, they sold all their proceeds from their property. Now, back in Greco-Roman culture, the, the, the greatest source of wealth at that time, they didn't have bank accounts. They didn't have a stock market. So the greatest way to have wealth was property. So when you sold a piece of property, I mean, you're bringing to the apostles' feet $500,000, a million dollars. That's a lot of money. Right? And there were a lot of people doing that, including Barnabas. Barnabas did that. Ananias and Sapphira did that too, but then they lied about the, the amount that they gave. And then God struck them dead. God don't mess around. Right? But the early church understood to advance the kingdom of God, for the gospel to be preached, for churches to be planted, it required finances. For the poor to be taken care of, which is a future message, I will preach on confronting poverty. And I have a different approach than what the um, philanthropists and nonprofits do. We, have, we need to have a kingdom approach toward confronting poverty. Anyway, uh, taking care of the poor, it requires money. So if you want to be like, well, well, I'm afraid if I take too many risks, I'm going to lose the amount of money I already have. That's wicked and lazy attitude. You need to steward what you have and expect to even have more. The one who has, Jesus Jesus says, will be given even more. But the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Make no mistake about it. All of you in here. God expects increased prosperity in every way. Richness in finances, richness in relationships, richness in wisdom. You got to be rich toward God. You know, the, 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 roads, the roads of heaven are paved in gold. It could just be like cinder, concrete. No, the way Jesus does things is bling bling. Everything gold. That's crazy. You think God doesn't care? You think he's scared of finances like you are? Okay. I'm telling you right now, uh, if, if you sat through my wealth and poverty class, you would understand that our concepts of wealth actually come more from Greek philosophy than it does from the Bible. If you want a more closer biblical view of it, look at the, how the Jews think about wealth. Now let's talk about that right now. How to steward financial prosperity. Okay. Two concepts you just have to remember from today is real simple. Number one. It is about stewardship, not ownership. Everybody say stewardship. Stewardship. The Bible says in Genesis that God created the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. Everything belongs to God. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. So, a writer in my Wealth and Poverty class, he said it like this. He says, Since God as creator, is the owner of all things. We are not owners of anything. We are only stewards of things that God has entrusted to us. It's very much like the parable of the talents and the minas. We are not owners of this money and wealth. We are simply stewards of it. Tell your neighbor, everything you have belongs to God. You're just a steward. 
Now, in establishing that, I want you to be careful of the other extreme. Which means, uh, the other extreme will be renouncing all private property. Okay? God does not mind you having private property. In fact, private property is a biblical concept. You know, God never advocates communism in the Bible. You know, Karl Marx tried to take the book of Acts. And Karl Marx was full of the devil, man. That's this guy, he, he meant well, but man, he was believing all kinds of doctrines of demons. He twisted the book of Acts to say that the early New Testament church was practicing a form of communism where private property rights were renounced and people had everything in common. Now, if you do not read that text carefully, you might conclude the same thing, as did a lot of early 19th, uh, 20th century Christians. A lot of 20th century Christians read Karl Marx's stuff, and they said, Karl Marx is right on. This early church had everything in common. We need to stop being so greedy. We need to be like, like that movie, uh, was it Wonderlust? Was that, was that movie? With uh, Jennifer Aniston and... Wonderless. I don't watch that movie. It's a filthy movie. Filthy movie. Anyway, like we need to live in communes where nobody has private property. Everything belongs to everybody, including spouses. You know, and they have this like common love and free love, free sex, you know, all that stuff, right? Anyway, some Christians don't take it to that extreme. But, you know, they say let's renounce all private property. God wants everything to be in common so that everybody's provided for. Okay? Eh. It's not biblical. This is a clear misunderstanding of the text. The key to understanding that Acts text is you got to read it in the Greek. And this is why I love Greek. It's a pain in the butt to learn. But once you have learned it, hallelujah, there is so much insight you gain. I'll just go over it real quick. I'll go into it more depth in a future sermon on, on fellowship. Uh, I'm going to def- redefine fellowship for you in the future. But anyway. The Greek verb here is not an errorist. An errorist verb in the Greek, it denotes a past event that's done. It's a completed past action. The Greek verb is not errorist. It's an imperfect. Imperfect verbs denote something that's in the past, but it's continually being done. For example, I hope I get this right. I ran yesterday. That is an errorist verb. I was running yesterday. Okay? That will be an imperfect. That makes sense? All right. Good. <coughs> so the, te- the, the verbs there in the Greek, all of them, there are like four or five verbs in that text. All of them are imperfect. Meaning that there was no absolute denying and renouncing of private property. It was rather a continual offering up of private property. Meaning they never renounced it permanently. They just took what was theirs and they continually brought it to the church. Do you guys see the difference? It was a continual act. It was a moment, a, sli- a, a, a sliver in that history. It was, a, it was a glimpse of what was going on in that church. Everyone was continually bringing these offerings so that they had everything in common. Not everyone renounced their private property once and for all. And they had everything in common. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? All right. Anyway, it's about stewardship, not ownership. 
God wants us to understand that there are certain limits that are placed upon our private property rights. I'm going to read a quote to you from our, my lecturer, Doc, uh, Professor Helen Rhee. She's an excellent professor over at, um, at a college, Bible college in, in California. I think it's called Mont. Anyway, okay, yeah. Uh, I forget the name of school. And she said, the scriptures define stewardship so that a limit is put on the concentration on wealth and economic power. Stewardship is also not seen as just a matter of individual practice, but as a social obligation and has social ramifications. In other words, your private property is a public matter. It's not about just you taking care of your own. God has certain, he has put certain demands on your private property. You need to understand that. Because if you don't understand that, you're in effect robbing from God. Okay, so let me go over some Jewish understanding of property rights. The Jews had a threefold limitations on the rights of property. For example, number one, they said God has the ultimate ownership over all the property. Okay, I already said that. Number two, they believe that you cannot harm people with your property. So for, for example, if you, had a, if you have an ox and the ox maims somebody then it was, you had, a, you had a responsibility to pay for that person's medical bills. All right? Number three, the rights of the poor. Okay? So these three factors put a limitation on how you spent your private property, your private wealth. So let me mention a couple of things. In the Old Testament, there were gleaning laws. Gleaning laws, they're simply put like this. Back then, the economy was largely agricultural, right? So it was about farming, and you take the apples and potatoes, and then that's how you made a living, right? Very agricultural economy. And in the Old Testament, God required by law that when harvesters went through a field, you had to leave a portion of the field unharvested. God required it by law. And for anyone that harvested the entire field because of their greed and refusal to uh, walk by God's laws, God saw them in judgment. In fact, by the time of idolatry and the Israel and Judah is getting judged, those are the same things that God brings up and indicts them with. You have no regard for the widow, the alien, or the orphan. See, the reason why he required that a portion of the field not be gleaned is because... Orphans, widows, and orphans, widows, and what was the other? Aliens. In that cultural society, it's a little different today, but in that cultural society, they had no way to make a living because of the patriarchal society then. They had no way to make a living. So the way that they fed themselves was they went to that portion of the field that remained unharvested and they fed themselves that way. On top of that, Harvesters were required to go through the field only once. So if you went through the field and you hired about 10 people and they went through the field to pick corn, they could not do a double take and go in there and get the rest of the corn. You were only to bring home and harvest the corn that you got on the first pass. Anything that remained there was belongs to the alien, the fatherless, the widow. On top of that, 
When you're harvesting, if anything falls to the ground, you are required to leave it there. God commanded, do not pick it up. And that's exactly what happened in the book of Ruth. Okay, Ruth goes through Boaz's field, following after Boaz's workers. Boaz, because he really wanted to show favor toward Ruth and his loving kindness and the hesed of God that he was manifesting, he commanded, he told his uh, workers, take a fistful and accidentally leave that behind for Ruth. So Ruth got that favor. She's like, oh, snap, today there's bonus. That's because Boaz commanded his uh, workers to do that for her. Okay? But those laws were in place to protect the widow, alien, and the fatherless. Why do we need to, why do we even today still need to protect the widow, alien, and fatherless? Why? Okay? And this is a forgotten value in, in today's church. In church culture, we, we have forgotten this. And even at New Philly, we, 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 we almost don't give this any thought. And, you know, John Michael and, and the orphanage staff, they're, they're the ones who really see it face-to-face on a regular basis. But for the rest of us, we don't even think about it, okay? Why do we need to protect the fatherless, widow, and alien? Because they're the most vulnerable in our society. And God's heart always goes toward those who are vulnerable, toward ex- exploitation and oppression. What's the human trafficking uh, issue, the sex industry, all about, really? You looked at uh, the movie Nefarious. How do they define it? It's the exploitation of the vulnerable. A lot of times the, the women that are trapped in the sex industry are children who are orphaned or children that are very poor, widows, whatever, people who can't even make a living. They often are trapped or they choose to go into the sex industry. All right, And people shouldn't have to even choose to do that. Whether they're Christian or not, the church should be there to provide some kind of relief for them. Right? And so, so there were these laws. And even the law of Jubilee, uh, it, it was all about a limitation on your private property rights. Uh, even property that you acquired and you bought from somebody else, on the year of Jubilee, it was required that you return it. Right? And so you can't say, I'm not returning this. This belongs to me. I bought this land. I bought this apartment. No, God would be like, it's the year of Jubilee. You better give it up. I'm God. And I made this perpetual. You better give it up right now. Okay? And we have to understand that the spirit of these laws, they still are in effect to our hearts. We can't be like, oh, too bad for them, the unfortunate They were born into an unfortunate country, unfortunate family. Okay, we need we need to start taking responsibility and upholding the spirit of of these of these laws. Wealth per se, this is notes from my class. Wealth per se is never denounced. Wealth itself is not evil. The desire for wealth is where evil lurks, and there are harsh words for the wealthy in the New Testament. And this is because wealth carries a responsibility. And this Jewish emphasis of being blessed to be a blessing has been forgotten today. It is not an evil thing for you to be wealthy. It's not an evil thing for you to even desire to be wealthy. But if you do desire to be wealthy, you have to understand it biblically. 
clearly. Because there's traps in there if you don't understand it biblically. If you desire to be wealthy, you have to understand that you're blessed to be a blessing. If God does give you the power to produce wealth, it's for you to be blessed to be a blessing. It's for you to, to uphold the rights of the oppressed. It's for you to take responsibility for things that you normally wouldn't take responsibility for. It's about stewardship, not ownership. You know, God has a big say on how our money ought to be used. And, he, and, and you know what? We shouldn't be upset with him because he does that. Remember, we're only stewards. If somebody should be upset, it should be God. He's going, by the way, that's my money. That's my resources that you're holding with a tight fist. I gave you that so some of it you can enjoy, but the rest I want you to provide for the poor. I want you to bless the orphan. I want you to take the, the fatherless in. But you think it's all about you. Okay, so number one, it's about stewardship, not ownership. Look, if you begin to think that that, that money and that private property, your apartment, your, your belongings, that it's all yours... You're going to fall into a danger. You know why? Because Jesus said no one can serve two masters. Either he'll be devoted to one and, uh, and despise the other. He'll hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve God and money. Either God is the owner of all things and you're just a steward. Or you are the owner of all things and money is probably your God. God has a right. He has a big say in how you use your private property. Okay, number two. Oh, by the way, um, I'll go into that in a future message. Number two. Oh, that's a good one. It's about expectation, not entitlement. Turn to Job chapter one. Everyone turn to Job chapter one. Job is before the book of Psalms. Go to Job chapter 1. Everybody, if you have a Bible, please turn to Job chapter 1. I lied. I I didn't go 15 minutes. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm going to keep going though. It's it's too late. Job chapter 1, verse 20 to 22. Look at this. Satan, he takes away everything that Job has. And God allows it to test Job. He's lost his home. He's lost his children. He's lost everything. This is Job in verse 20. Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and he worshipped. And he said... Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked should I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong or with evil. Okay. Now, a lot of times when we read that text, we go, oh, what a virtuous man Job was. What a man of faith. 
What a man of patience. And we don't discern what was Job's basic values in thinking about his wealth. For Job, it was about expectation, not entitlement. And this is why when he was tested, he responded in this godly way. For, for many people in the church, old and young, we've got it backwards. We have a sense of entitlement. And we lack a sense of expectation in God's goodness. So entitlement sounds like this. It's not, God, you owe me, I belong to you. It's, God, you owe me. Where's my stuff? That's the sense of entitlement. The attitude of, I have a right to that. God, this belongs to me. How can you take this girlfriend away? How can you take my job away? Or let's get more serious. How can you take my loved one away? And for a child who does not understand, that's why it's so hard for a child to go through something traumatic like losing a loved one. For a child, they don't have a grit to think differently. They have a sense of entitlement. But a sense of entitlement is a renouncing of the gospel. Because it neglects the true state of manhood. And it puts a demand on things that we don't really deserve, ultimately. We don't have any rights to. Some people will flirt. They'll flirt with people. Even good New Philly leaders, they will flirt with people. And they will have this sense of entitlement. Well, I'm entitled to these romantic, you know, experiences. Because God, you're taking so long for my marriage. Can I just enjoy a little bit of, you know, emotional you know, flirting, emotional approval. You know, can I, can, can I enjoy a little bit of emotional? Can I feel a little valued? They have the sense of entitlement. God, or, or pornography. God, a lot of guys say, God, you created me with these hormones. It's your fault that I feel this way. Therefore, I'm entitled to this pornography. I need to get by somehow, God. Entitlement is really entitlement is just it kills faith. Um, entitlement misunderstands God's goodness. Entitlement is usually the result of not understanding God as your father. God being a good God, God being a good father. If you being wicked know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? That was Jesus trying to reform the Jewish understanding of God as a good God. Because they have been so judged throughout their history. The key to battling an attitude of entitlement, and all of us have to battle this at one point or another. Even Aaron and myself, when we go into this new apartment, we're going to have to start battling a sense of entitlement. We got to think clearly. We have to understand God could take this apartment away at any time. And our response needs to be like Job, worship. 
Not. God, you took away our best apartment. How could you do this to us? What are you going to take away next? Okay, that's sense of entitlement. The key to battling an attitude of entitlement is thanksgiving and contentment. Thanksgiving and contentment. Thanksgiving says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. And you understand that everything you enjoy in life is actually a gift of God. And so no matter what income level you're at, you can always be thankful. Thanksgiving is not a matter of income level. Status. It is a matter of understanding that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. And by the way, contentment. Be content with what you have. Okay? I want to preach this. Contentment and expectation of greater prosperity are not at odds with each other. Some people think, be content. Stop asking God for more. Be content with what you have. And if you're truly being content, you will stop asking God for a bigger screen TV. You will stop asking God for a better car. You stop asking God for a bigger apartment. And they think it's at odds with each other. It's not. It's not. You can be content and still live with an expectation and have a faith for more. They're not at at odds. The difference between expectation and entitlement. In expectation, you expect increase and goodness because of your faith in the goodness and favor of God. And this goodness and favor of God was purchased for you at the cross. It's not something you earn. You can only receive it via your identity as a son of the living God. It's an act of God's grace. Whenever you receive something, it's always an act of God's grace. So there's never an entitlement attached to a gift. For example, if I gave Marcus a really nice Christmas gift this December, I buy him a 300 pair pair of shoes. I got him like a $200 pair he's wearing right now, right? If I got him like a really nice pair of shoes and the next year I give him just the Christmas card and Marcus goes, card? <laughs> Last year you give me $300 shoes and this year you just give me a card? What is this? What kind of spiritual father are you? If you reacted like that, what are you looking at? You're looking at entitlement. Because he received that gift the previous year. He, if he has an entitlement to a, a bigger and better Christmas gift the next year, right? I'm going to look at him like he's crazy. You can't have an entitlement to a gift. You can have an expectation for a gift. But if it doesn't come, you better deal with it. But you can't have an entitlement toward it. Because if you have an entitlement toward it and you don't get it, you get all kinds of feelings of anger and resentment that are unjustified. And people do that with God all the time. In entitlement, basically, you expect increase in goodness because you believe you're a good person. And because you believe, because you haven't killed nobody, you haven't done anything that evil, God owes you something. God owes you an opportunity at more income. God owes you a nicer home. God owes you a decent marriage. Entitlement, it's, a, it's toxic 
to your relationship with God. It's just poison. What I want to teach y'all today is entitlement and expectation look exactly the same when people pray. But the spirit behind that prayer is completely, radically different. God, give me more. God, take us to a better home. It looks the same, the petition's the same, but the spirit is completely different. You know, the real test is, you think to yourself, well, what if I lose it all? And I believe that God gave us the book of Job to show us a godly way to respond when you lose it all. Because it does happen. And if the tribulation comes, if you're post-trip kind of post-trip kind of person, and you believe that Christians are going to go through the tribulation, tribulation comes, you lose everything. Or Korean War, remember Korean War happened? Just 60 years ago, everybody lost everything. Japanese occupation, all the wealthy Koreans, they all got enslaved. They all got, they got their property taken away. All right, I'm not saying it's going to happen to y'all, all right? But think for a second. How would the attitude of your heart respond when you lose these things? Would you be like Job and still praise them? Or would you be like Job's wife and say, curse God and die already? Job's wife had entitlement. Job had an expectation. And when Job lost everything, he felt this inner turmoil. Something is wrong. This isn't right. And he wasn't wicked for thinking that way. Job was walking in righteousness and he had an expectation that he would experience God's goodness. And this was not a wicked or evil thing. Think about that. It wasn't like Job was like, well, I'm just a dirty sinner. You know, I'm really a sinner. I'm righteous now. But, you know, I used to be a really bad sinner. And I'm just redeemed by God's grace. I didn't deserve any of that anyway. He didn't say that. So what is wrong? What's going on? And his friends were like, well, you probably did something stupid. Think, think, think. He said, no, I can't think of nothing. You know, it was because he had no sense of entitlement that Job was able to say, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naked I came, naked will I return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, If I thought, what if we uh, move into this apartment and two months later, you know, we get jerked over and we lose our home and we got to move into, you know, some dingy apartment out in Yonidong, where the first place I lived in. It's a really freezing cold apartment with no insulation whatsoever. What, what, if, what if we did that? What would be my response? Would I still praise him? Or what if, what if, New Philly, we're like going from glory to glory. And North Korea accidentally shot a missile and just destroyed both Hillside and Itaewon on the same Sunday. And, and like 80% of y'all died. What would I do? I mean, would I, that's like my, that's like my sons and daughters, you know? If I lost all y'all, what would I do? If I lost, if I lost my ministry, if I lost all my money, if I lost even my wife, 
What would my response be? And I got to predetermine. You have to predetermine in your heart that you're going to say, I have an expectation of God's goodness. Even if that happened to me, I will still have an expectation of God's goodness. But everything he has taken away, I will have no sense of entitlement to it. I will simply worship and thank him that I got to enjoy what I did. You see, all of this goes back to the cross. Because we have to remember the truth of our situation. Through Adam, all have sinned. And since the Garden of Eden, the progeny of Adam, all the descendants of Adam, when left to their own devices, have gone increasingly wicked. In the earliest days, they used to live up to a thousand. Why did God limit the number of days of man to 120 years? Because of our evil. Back then, he didn't pour out his spirit upon his people either. And when he looked, it got increasingly wicked. He had to bring a flood and judge the entire world. The truth of our situation is we are wicked sinners. God does not owe us anything. What God owes us is his justice and judgment for our sin. We all talk about what's fair. That's what's fair. You want to talk about what God, what you have a right to? You have a right to his judgment. And every time you sin, you're, you're racking up God's wrath for your sin. But because of Jesus, because God sent his only son onto this earth to die a criminal's death on our behalf, tortured and crucified for us, because of the shed blood of Jesus, we are able to have our Identity completely and radically changed from sinner to saint. From one deserving death and punishment to one that is clothed righteousness and dignity. One that says, I'm unworthy. And in, in a theological sense, you could be correct. But if you truly believe in your new identity, you will stop saying that. One famous person said it like this. Some things are loved because they are worthy. And some things are worthy because they are loved. Your mantra should stop being, I'm unworthy, I'm unworthy, I'm unworthy. Because God has put his predestined love upon you and applied his grace so you will respond to the gospel message. You are now a person of great worth. Wasn't that the message of Alan Hood last night? God sees you as a person of dignity and worth. Because he has put his love on you. So from now on, everything we receive, gifts, spouses, homes, and for men... Spouses, the Bible says, houses and wealth are inherited from parents, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. If you're married to a prudent wife in here, she is God's gift to you. And for the women, you are God's gift being ready for some godly man.
Everything received that is good, it is all the result of Jesus Christ. And therefore, there is no place for entitlement. It's simply thanksgiving and simply expectation based on who you are in Christ. That's okay. Hold on to that. Contend for that. But in the meantime, be thankful and content with what you have. Anybody hear my message today? So how do you steward financial prosperity? Remember, it's not about stewardship. It's, it's about stewardship, not ownership. And it's about expectation, not entitlement. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in this room there are millionaires. Leave the lights on. I thank you that in this room there are millionaires, billionaires, people that are going to go on and steward great wealth, and that wealth is not going to cause them to collapse. With that greater stewardship, there will be a great character and integrity that you are shaping inside of your sons and daughters. I tell you, you are the head and not the tail. You will lend and not borrow. It, God is not intimidated by your financial situation. God is not discouraged by your income level or your lack of education or your lack of opportunities. God says, I will bless you and you will be blessed to be a blessing to all nations. But God's looking for those who are going to steward his blessing faithfully. The Bible says wealth in the hands of a fool is like something stupid. I forget. There's a lot of verses like that in the Proverbs. But when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Lord, I pray that in this room, the righteous remnant of God will prosper. And this city will begin to rejoice. And suicide rates will go down. And children will begin to follow their dreams and see their creativity flow. And we will see the churches revived in ways that we never imagined. This country reunified. Lord, economists estimate that $48 billion to $245 billion will be required for the first year of reunification if it happens. God, we believe that it is happening. And we pray that the remnant of your people will be able to come and offer their offerings to help pay that cost to unify this land. And I pray that, Lord, in here, and this is a big problem, y'all. I pray that in here, I decree and declare that every person will take these teachings and steward it and teach it to their children and their children's children. We don't want spoiled new Philly kids coming out of this house. Lord forbid that there will be spoiled little children's ministry kids that are running around, running around Banyan tree and not listening to people and, 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 and having all this entitlement toward all this wealth, Lord. We want children of wisdom and righteousness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.